We're in our main message series today on the life of Jesus, going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order to discover for ourselves who Jesus really is, what he really did, what he really taught, and what he really said. And last week, we looked at the mystical side of this parable in Luke 16, called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that took us into, as we said, all these interesting corners of the afterlife and some fascinating parts of the Bible that don't usually get covered. But all of that is the mystical deeper level of things. This week we're gonna look at Luke 16 as a whole on the practical, applicable level that Jesus intended it to be taken, which is all around the issue of how we should handle money and resources during our time on the earth. Jesus is not going to say that money is inherently evil, he's going to give us some insights into how we should use our money and resources so that we can reap eternal benefits. You know, if I came to you and I said, I've got some simple points, just a few simple principles that you can apply to your life today, and if you do, they will guarantee you future riches and prosperity beyond your wildest dreams. Guaranteed, doesn't matter what the stock market does, doesn't matter what happens to the housing market, this is an absolute guarantee if you'll do these few simple things. Would you be interested? Of course you'd be interested. Never forget that when Jesus talks about what matters in eternity, he's speaking from experience because eternity is his home. And I wanna encourage you to really let that sink in. He's not a motivational speaker saying, this is how I hope it works out, This is how I think it will work out. He's saying, this is how it is in my home, in my kingdom, where I rule and reign. This is how it is, and I'm sharing that information with you. So my prayer is that the Lord would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and to respond to the words of Jesus as we open his word this morning. You know, as a pastor, when you talk about money on a Sunday morning, you can normally feel the room tense up. You can feel people thinking like, oh, why did I have to come to church today? And the reason for that is because money's incredibly precious to pretty much all of us, if we're honest. You know, Zig Ziglar put it well when he said, money isn't the most important thing in life, but it's reasonably close to oxygen on the gotta have it scale. That's a pretty good description. So if we can be honest enough to admit to ourselves that money is a really big deal to us, it's a really big part of life, then we can begin to understand and appreciate why Jesus said more about money than about any other subject. He talked more about money than he talked about heaven or hell. Quite simply, money is the rung on the ladder of faith that most believers will sadly never climb past. That's as high as they'll get in their faith walk. This figure is amazing to me. One-sixth of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one-sixth deal with money. That's unbelievable, as do 12 of the 38 parables. The longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, deals with the word of God, but the second longest, number seven, is all about the giving of money. You see, Jesus knows us, he knows us, and he knows money is a powerful, powerful thing. That's why he chooses to talk about it so much. So when we get tense, when we get cranky, when we get defensive when the church talks about money, we're really only proving Jesus' point. Money's a big deal to Jesus because money is a big deal to us. And if he's going to be the God over our lives, that includes our money. And if we were always happy to trust God with our money, he wouldn't need to talk about it. Last thing before we dive into today's text, there are many of you who are 
trusting God with your finances and putting him first. And I trust that for you, today's message is going to bless you and encourage you to keep doing what you're doing, to keep trusting the Lord. We're a small church and yet we've been able to do some things to reach some people and and help some people in some causes that most churches our size simply can't do. And that's because many of you have been faithful to put the Lord first in your finances. So I want to encourage you to keep doing that and be encouraged by the message today. I would say God bless you for doing that, but I know he already is. So my prayer for you is instead of being tense, that those of you who are putting the Lord first, you might be among the first people to say amen out loud during a message on money in church. So we can make that a goal today. So let's jump in. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Speaking of Jesus, it said, he also said, and I just want you to pick up that that is connecting chapter 16 back to the previous chapter and the parable of the prodigal son. You see, that chapter dealt with two brothers, one who wasted his money and another brother who saved his money. And the reason Jesus is linking it is because he's going to explain neither of those are the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to invest your money wisely, not to put it in the hole in the ground and save it, not to waste it, but to invest it and steward it wisely. So he also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. Stewards were just business managers for wealthy households. They would manage all the money in a wealthy estate. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So this particular steward stands accused of cheating his employer. Verse 2, So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. We're going to make two quick notes here before we go along, so write this down. A steward manages someone else's money. A steward manages someone else's money for a temporary length of time. This is not a forever assignment. They manage someone else's money and resources for a temporary length of time. And then make a note of this too. Every steward must give an account for their stewardship. There are no stewards who are told, just do whatever you want and you know what happens, happens. I'm cool with it. Every steward must give an account of their stewardship. Verse three, then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. He's a white collar guy. He's basically an accountant. He's like, I can't go do a manual labor job and I've got too much pride to beg and The reason for this is he would have been a powerful and respected man. He would have made and broken the kind of deals that make and break men and careers because when he conducted business, he conducted business with the full resources of his master behind him. But what you learn here is you learn it's all really an illusion because it's not his money. He doesn't really have power and resources and wealth because it all belongs to his master. And so he is now painfully aware that just like that, it's all going to come to an end for him. And he's going to have nothing. Verse 4, he keeps speaking to himself and he says, I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he recognizes his reality and his coming predicament and he says, I've come up with a plan to make sure that I have a place to go, houses waiting for me, and friends waiting to receive me when I'm kicked to the curb. So verse five, we find out what his plan is. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him, those who owed his master money, and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. This is basically two to three years 
of an average person's salary, that amount worth of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50, cut it in half. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So he knows his days of employment are numbered. He knows he's not gonna be able to take care of himself when he gets let go. So he decides to use the little bit of time he has left to set himself up for the problems he's going to have in the future, for the fact he's gonna be homeless in the future. So he slashes debts by 20%, 50% with a wink, wink, nudge, nudge sort of agreement. I'll take care of you, and then when I need you to, you will take care of me. We have a deal. Verse eight, so the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. When the master finds out what the steward has been doing, we expect him to punish him, to chastise him, to have him arrested and thrown in jail, but that's not what happens. The master sits back and he goes, that's, that's brilliant. You, you are a smart, smart guy. That's absolutely ingenious of you to do that with your last few days on the job. Now this is about the time where those listening to the parable and you and I should be thinking, this doesn't sound like a Jesus parable. The crooked steward gets applauded? Isn't he supposed to go to hell or something? Well, hold on. The point Jesus is making is laid out right here in the back half of verse 8. Underline this whole sentence. Jesus now says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. What a true statement Jesus is making here. He's saying most unbelievers, like the steward in the parable, take their future seriously. They're thinking about where their career is going to go. They're saving for retirement early, early on in their lives, decades before they get there. They're thinking about how their house is going to appreciate. They're taking stock of their future on earth, in this kingdom, this generation, and they're making decisions now to set themselves up for later in their life. He says they're more aggressive and wise in preparing for their temporal future, their temporary future, than believers are in preparing for their eternal future. And this should not be so. It shouldn't be this way. Now Jesus is gonna make it clear that he's specifically talking about money and he's gonna outline the benefits of giving. He says, and I say to you, his disciples, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. Mammon just means wealth, so unrighteous wealth. That when you fail, it literally means when it fails, they may receive you into an everlasting home. If you haven't picked up on it, when he says everlasting home, he's speaking about heaven. So very, very interesting. He says a lot here. The steward had money and resources at his disposal, but the steward recognized he wouldn't always have that money and resources at his disposal. So while he had them, he used them to make himself friends that he could call upon in the future. Jesus is saying, if you're a believer, your money and your wealth is going to stay here on the earth. You're going to spend eternity in heaven. You have money and resources and time and talent in this life, a temporary time to set yourself up for your coming kingdom, eternity. Let's be clear, he's not talking about salvation, he's talking about rewards. He's saying your station in heaven the lifestyle you enjoy, the pleasures you enjoy, that, that's dictated by how you steward the resources and money you have for a temporary time here. And he says, here's the tragic thing. Those who don't believe in God, 
take their 20, 30, 40 years of retirement more seriously and plan for it more aggressively and wisely than believers plan for their eternity. He says they're more shrewd than the children of light. More shrewd. Here's what I know. None of us are gonna get to heaven. Find what's waiting for us there because of what we trusted God with here and go, that's it. That's it. None of us are going to say that. We're going to look at what's waiting for us in heaven and we're going to go, um, should I say something? Because I have a rough idea how much I gave in my life and this doesn't seem like the right amount. This is like way, way more than I expected. Should I say something to St. Peter or what do I do? Don't say anything. That's what it's gonna be like. We're gonna be blown away because it's not like this. Oh, you know, I trusted the Lord with $5, so five kingdom bucks are waiting for me in heaven. You can get yourself a stuffed toy. That's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about things like our capacity to enjoy heaven. It's gonna be amazing for everyone, but some will have a higher capacity. Some are getting a mug and some are getting dust boot. That's what we're talking about here. Those are those giant beer mugs that look like a boot if you don't know what that is because you're a good Christian. So your capacity is going to be different in heaven. I'm confident I'm the only pastor that's ever made that analogy if anybody's keeping score. Our capacity is going to be different. So write this down. This is Jesus' financial advice. Really get this. This is financial advice from Jesus. His financial advice is to use our temporary wealth to acquire eternal wealth. Use our temporary wealth to acquire eternal wealth. In Luke 6, Jesus says it like this. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now it's interesting, in verse nine we read, he says, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, unrighteous wealth. And this is an interesting thought because what Jesus does is he calls wealth unrighteous. And this is very interesting to me because what Jesus seems to be implying is that money is not inherently neutral. It's not neutral, it's by nature unrighteous. And Mammon was actually a name of a god served by some pagan groups around this time. And so what Jesus is implying here is pretty radical. When you read through the Bible, you read through books like Daniel, you learn something. You learn that both the forces of heaven, those allied to Jesus, and the forces of Satan are organized like armies. They have a structure. They have a hierarchy. They have a chain of command. And we learn from Daniel that Satan even assigns specific demonic entities to certain geographic areas. In Babylon, where Daniel is in captivity, when he's praying and he's waiting for a response for the Lord, the angel shows up a few weeks later and tells Daniel, I came the moment you started praying, but I was delayed, for there is a mighty demon over the region of Babylon, and I was battling him. And you hear that and you go, what? That's... So strange, but we learn from that that there are specific demonic forces behind specific things. They have assignments. And so the implication here would seem to be that wealth, money, mammon has a demonic force behind it based from what we see in the world. We can assume one of the strongest demonic forces when you look at what people are willing to do for money. 
It's very, very powerful. And so Jesus is saying, listen, money is not inherently neutral. It's inherently unrighteous. It's inherently evil. But then he says the strangest thing. He says, make friends with unrighteous mammon. Do something good with this unrighteous mammon. So his solution for money is not so have nothing to do with money. He really gives a command here. He says, so redeem it. We might even say, convert your currency. And this whole chapter is about how do you convert your currency? How do you take unrighteous wealth that wants to control you, wants to dominate you, wants to defile you, how do you take that and turn it into something good that can actually benefit you in eternity? How do you convert that? That's what Jesus is talking about here. And we're going to find the way that you convert money is by submitting it to God, forcing it to bow before Jesus. It's the way you gain victory in any area of your life is you force it to submit to God. And it bows before God and now God says, okay, now it has no power, it has no authority, and now we can do something righteous even with unrighteous mammon, unrighteous wealth. Well, everybody is pretty comfortable when we talk about things in the abstract, especially with money, right? In other words, things don't get tense when I say we need to trust God with our money and put him first. People can say amen to that. Likewise, when I say something like, you know, trusting God with your money means he may ask you to be generous and give to some specific person or cause in the future. We're fine with that because we can put the future off indefinitely, right? That's the great thing about the term, the future. That's when we're all gonna diet and get in shape, right? That's when we'll all be generous. The future, this vague point somewhere way down the line that we never really get to. But if you're a loving father, if you're a good parent, and you want your children to learn something because you know it's important. If you're a good parent, you don't say, we'll learn that in the future. You do whatever you have to do to help your kids learn it now. If you have to orchestrate events, you will do that. If you have to create a situation, you'll do that. If you have to give them action steps, you'll do that. Otherwise, if it's difficult, that moment in the future will never come. You'll just never get to it. That's what God did with money. That's what he's done with money. He created the tithe. So I want you to write this down. The tithe is the first 10% of everything we earn, net. The first 10% of everything we earn, net. And the whole concept comes from Leviticus where it talks about first fruits. And here's why that's so important. It's not 10%. It's the first 10%. Now we can't be exactly true to that because the government has decided to place themselves upstream from God in our finances and I encourage you to honor that or some very bad things will probably happen to you. But the concept is first fruits and here's what God literally says. He says the first belongs to me. Before your rent, before your food bills, before your car payment, before anything, the first fruits belong to me. So the concept here originates with you have a field and the first 10% of your harvest, what you get from the field is given to God. The first fruits, 10% net, that's the idea. As we're going to discover, God tells us in his word, and this is a really big concept with tithing, the first 10% of everything we own belongs to him. You see, we have the wrong idea when we think, oh, tithing is when I give 10% to God. No, no, tithing is when you give back to God the 10% that he gave to you so you would have it to give to him. He says he owns it. He doesn't just say you should give it to me. He says, I own it. The moment you have it, 
I own it. I owned it before you even have it. It belongs to me and I put it in your care to see if you will be faithful to return it to me. That's what the tithe is. He knows that we need to grow in our faith and trust in the area of money. So he says, so we're gonna have a regularly scheduled exercise to do that. Because I know you, says the Lord. And none of you are gonna wake up and say, hey, you know what? I was just thinking, I have about 10% too much money. I'm gonna start giving that to the Lord. He knows that's never ever going to happen. And he says, we gotta learn how to do this. We gotta deal with this issue of money. Too many of my children, my sons, and my daughters are being controlled by unrighteous mammon. It has such a grip on them that even when I call them to trust me with it, they can't because it has a grip on them. So we gotta do something about that. And the Lord created the tithe. In Deuteronomy 14.23, I put it on your outline, the Lord makes it clear when he says, the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. That's the purpose. God didn't wake up one day and go, you know, I just got terrible news. We're out of money here in heaven. I know I made the universe, the stars, created human beings, gave them the breath of life. I hold everything in my hands. I measure the universe and the gap between my pinky and my thumb, but we're short of cash. Fundraising, that's what we're gonna do. Bake sales aren't cutting it, the tithe. We're taking 10%, heavy taxation on the church. I got some big projects coming up. That's not what happened. The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. That's what God said. That's why we do it. So make a note of this. The tithe wasn't created for God. It was created for us. It wasn't created for God. It was created for us. And the more you read the Bible, here's what you'll find about the great stories in the Bible. You will find that the issue of faith is central to everything. The Bible is full of people who God used in amazing ways, not because they were perfect, but because they trusted God. They put their faith in God. And the Bible is also full of stories of people who missed out and made bad choices because they chose not to put their faith in God. That stuff's all over the Bible. The tithe is part of God's way of getting us to the greater place of faith so that he can do more in our lives. So please hear me. Trusting God with our money is far, far more than tithing. Trusting God with our money is opening up everything we have to God and essentially saying, what do you want me to do with this? How do you want me to steward this? That's really what it looks like. But tithing is the first step. It's the first step. And the reason we're gonna deal with that is it's the step that the most believers struggle with. You see, there's no point in me sitting here and telling you about how the Lord may come to you and ask you to support a widow or an orphan and you need to write a check when he does it. There's no point talking about that if we're stuck on the step of tithing. Because I promise, if you don't have ears to hear the Lord on the issue of tithing, you won't have ears to hear him on any other issue related to money. That's just the truth. So we're gonna speak to that issue this morning. We're gonna unpack it more as we go. Let's keep reading verse 10. Let's underline the whole of verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. I'm gonna be honest here as a pastor for 14 years, 14 years now, man, I'm getting old. I've had an incredible number of people who are professing believers come to me and say, I can't figure out what's going on. There's just never enough money and I don't know what to do. 
And yet inevitably when I talk with them, it'll come out they haven't been tithing. And I don't want to lie, it absolutely befuddles me because I know that they know what the Bible says. We know, we know what the Bible says about tithing, yet I encounter a lot of believers who when push comes to shove, won't trust God with the tithe and will in the same breath throw up their hands and say, why won't God give me more money? Why won't he give me more money? Verse 10, could not make it any clearer. It couldn't make it any clearer. When it comes to believers and money, one of the things God tells us about people is that he who's faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. So we tell ourselves, you know, when I have more, then I'll be faithful to put God first. And God says right here, no, you won't. No, you won't. Because it's not an issue of dollars and cents. It's an issue of priorities. It's about whether your treasure is in heaven or on earth. So if we're telling ourselves, when I have more, then I'll be faithful to put God first. Jesus himself tells us, I know you. No, you won't. No, you won't. We all understand that most companies don't give promotions to employees whose pitch is, I know I'm a terrible employee. I'm always late, I really don't work hard, and I'm just generally awful at my job. But if you would make me manager, then you would see my great work ethic and skill set. I've never known a person who got a promotion with that pitch, who said, I, I know I'm not doing a good job being faithful with what I've been given right now, but if you would just pay me more and give me more power, then I'd do a good job. It generally doesn't work as a pitch. And the same is true with money. Write this down. The obstacle to tithing is not money, but priorities. The obstacle isn't money. The obstacle is priorities. And if you don't believe me, you can ask the widow in Luke 21. Let me read it to you. And he, Jesus, looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury at the temple. They're making a big show of it. You know, I don't know what they're doing if they're making it rain inside the temple, but they're making a big show. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. This is like, like two cents. So he said, and he says to his disciples, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all, for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. So in other words, they're giving, but they're not even feeling it. They've got so much money. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood she had. He said, these guys making a big show, that they're giving 1% of their income. This woman gave like everything she had. And it always strikes me that Jesus doesn't see this woman run across the street and, and say, stop, stop, ma'am. I'm the son of God. And my father has told me that this is the last of your money. I know how poor you are, and so as the son of God, I'm giving you a pass. I know this is a difficult time for you. You don't need to give. Jesus doesn't do that. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't do that. And do you know why? Because Jesus knows this woman's priorities are in the right place. And because her priorities are in the right place, she is open and available for God to work in her life. 
She's in agreement with God. Amos 3.3, can two walk together unless they're in agreement? She's in agreement with God. She's trusting God, so God is walking with her, and Jesus looks at her, and, and he's thinking, there's no way my heavenly Father's not gonna come through for that woman. There is no way. And the benefit that she is going to reap from trusting God with that money is infinitely greater than the benefit she would have from holding on to those two mites. Because if she holds on to those two mites, you know how much she has? Two mites. Do you have any idea how many options God has for doing good in your life, for doing good in the life of that woman? You have any idea, whether it's a job change, a promotion, the right accountant doing your taxes, the right landlord, the right property opening up? There's a million ways for God to open doors that you don't even know exist. The obstacle to tithing is not money, it's priorities. Verse 11, therefore, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, if you can't handle unrighteous wealth, who will commit to your trust the true riches? The true riches. This is heavy because what Jesus is telling us is that dealing with earthly wealth, unrighteous mammon, is the baseline the first step, the ground floor of being used by God in a mighty way in your life. This is the basic, basic test. Can you handle money? Isn't this amazing? Because we think that if we want to be used by God, we got to go off to Bible college and seminary. We got to get fluent in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic so that God can use us to minister to others. And what God says is, you know what I'm really looking for is someone who's willing to move a decimal point. That's where I'd like to start. Can somebody just manage money and honor me with their money? Can you handle that? Because if you can't handle that, why am I going to trust you with people? Why am I going to give you lives to speak into? Lives that are going to last for eternity. If you can't handle dollars and cents, if that's too much for you, why am I going to give you more? You know, the reason I will probably never be invited to speak again at a certain local Bible college is because last time I was there, I felt convicted and compelled to ask the students the question, how many of you are tithing? How many of you are tithing? In part because of this text. And I explained to them, I said, so, so let me get this straight. You're at Bible college hoping and desiring that one day a church will give you a job and pay you to be in ministry, a job where they will not be able to pay you unless other people are tithing and trusting God with their money, but you won't tithe and trust God with your money. I think the word hypocrite was thrown around as well, probably. I won't be invited back again, and it was just as awkward as it sounds. But I really believe that God is that serious about it. He's saying, you know, you're, you're studying foreign languages and, and looking for great copies of the original source text and you won't even trust me with money. You won't move a decimal point. But you have these desires and dreams that I'm gonna use you to impact the world? Let's start with your wallet. Can I impact your wallet? It's a humbling, humbling thought. And did you catch that Jesus is telling us in this text that 
money and wealth on the earth is not true riches? He's saying it's just money. Just money. And I want to suggest to you that these true riches are things for this earthly life. He's not talking about things you're going to get in heaven. I think he's talking about things for this life because the verbiage he uses is commit to your trust the true riches. And when it says commit to your trust, it implies that you're being entrusted with it, which implies there's the potential for you to misuse it. I want to suggest it's not really possible for you to misuse your eternal rewards. So this is talking about something that God is going to trust you with, therefore in this life. And I I really believe, my belief is that these real riches are the chance to be used by God to minister to others, to speak to family members and other people and have the authority of God behind you, have the Holy Spirit move, have him listen more intently when you pray. Another awkward point, the Bible says the fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much, accomplishes much. There is a difference between the power in the prayer of a righteous person and an unrighteous person. God hears them all, yes, but there's a difference in the power and the urgency with which he responds. There really is. So any way you slice this verse, any way you want to interpret it, it's clear that Jesus is telling us, if you don't manage your money right, if if I can't trust you with something as temporal as money, I can't move on to greater things with you. I can't trust you with bigger things than that. This is the starting point of faithfulness. So write this down. Money is God's entry-level test of our faithfulness to him. Money is God's entry-level test of God's faithfulness to him. I'm so blessed by how many of you are faithful to the Lord, but I would just share with you the last stat I heard in, in Canada and the states is the average is around 12 to 13% of believers tithe, 12 to 13%. And um, that means that conservatively, 85% of believers on their faith scale have reached the issue of money and never moved past it. They've never trusted God with money, never made it past that. Can you imagine what the church could do if every believer was tithing? And this hit me this week when I was preparing this. When God rails even in Malachi against his people who aren't tithing, he condemns them for things like you're not taking care of widows, you're not taking care of orphans. And we hear that and think like, oh, you know, we need to start a foundation for widows and orphans. It's not what God is saying. He's saying because you're not tithing, all of you, there's no money to do that. So God's actual model is that there's enough money in every local church that in that local area, that church can take care of all the widows and orphans. And do you know statistically that would be true? If 100% of believers were tithing, every local church would have enough money to take care of the orphans and widows there. We'd have more than enough. We'd be able to send it to other churches that have less to take care of. This is a staggering, mind-blowing thought. And, you know, we think and talk about, you know, how can we reach the world around us? Can you imagine what an example that would be? If places were able to say, yeah, we don't have orphans in this city because that church adopts all of them. All of them. You could have a church where somebody would say, I have a heart to adopt, but I've got no money. And the church would say, well, we'll just cover it all. We'll take care of all of it. Be, be amazing, amazing what would be possible. As a pastor, I've seen 
this over and over again. I've seen those who just can't get past the tithing thing and they can't bring themselves to do it. It's always a bad time. There's always a reason and the growth of their faith is always stunted, always stunted. They love Jesus but they're just not taking those increasing steps of faith. And I've shared this before, I don't share it to be manipulative but to just be honest, how it pains me as a pastor when I know someone can't trust God with money and a tragedy hits their life, someone gets cancer. And they know that if they're gonna pray, they need to have faith. And they wanna believe that they have the faith for God to heal that cancer. And I can't tell them, but I know what's true, that if you couldn't trust God with dollars and cents, you don't have the faith to believe God can heal cancer. I know you wanna believe you do, but your life doesn't have that track record. And the difference when there's someone who says, I've been trusting God with my money for 20 years, 30 years. I trusted God with my kids. I've trusted God with my spouse. I've trusted him through all kinds of times. They hit a tragedy and it's just the next faith challenge. It's just the next thing to trust God with. But faith is not a switch. You can't just flick it and suddenly become a giant of the faith. It doesn't work that way. Faith is built moment after moment, day after day, by saying yes to God over and over and over and over again. But I've also seen the flip side of this. You know, I've seen people who started tithing when they were unemployed and their tithe was $5 every two weeks. And I rejoiced because I knew they'd taken that step. They decided to be faithful with the little that they had. And I've seen people in that situation go on to trust God with greater and greater and greater things and have a growing faith and get their own God stories of how the Lord took care of them. I've seen God do amazing things. I've seen thousands of dollars in debt get canceled. We have people in this church right now who are tithing in difficult situations and God is doing some unbelievable things in their lives. I'm not at liberty to share those stories, but God's always doing good things. Verse 12, let's read together. And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Who will give you what is your own? You see, we've been entrusted with that which is another's. Our tithe belongs to the Lord. Write this down. Our tithe belongs to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. How much so? Just how much does our tithe belong to the Lord? Well, so much that the Lord says when we don't tithe, we're robbing him. I put this on your outline, Malachi 3.8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. So not only are we robbing God, according to God, okay? That's not me being manipulative, that's what God says. But there is a very real consequence for us as his children when we don't honor him. So what happens when we, as God's kids, don't tithe, we don't give him what he says belongs to him? What's the consequence? The very next verse, Malachi 3, 9, we read, you are cursed with a curse. Why? Because you have robbed me. Because you've robbed me. If we reject God's command, we hold on to his money that doesn't belong to us. We're not walking in agreement with him in the area of money. This is sobering. If we're not walking in agreement with him in the area of money, then it means he's not walking with us in the area of money. Amos 3.3, the two walking together, here's the picture. God is going this way. You can walk with God, but you're going over here if you're disobeying the Lord. And so you're dealing with financial situations over here and you're saying, Lord, where are you? And the answer is, he's over here. He's over here in the place his word says he'll be. 
Not only that, but according to the Lord, again, terrifying thought. If we're not giving him that which belongs to him, he is actively against us, opposing us in the area of money. And our money is cursed. How? Well, check out Haggai 1.9. Perhaps some of you can identify with this feeling. The Lord says, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, underline, I blew it away. I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Wow. So God says, listen, this was the situation. that The people of God were letting the temple become dilapidated. They weren't tithing. They weren't giving to God that which he says was his. And he says, you guys are so busy building your own homes, buying new furniture for your own homes, making your own homes look great. You're neglecting mine. And so he gives this sobering description. He says, so here's what it's like. You bring home your paycheck and it just seems to scatter into the wind. And God's saying, I'm the one that's doing it because you're robbing me. You've chosen to have a cursed 100% rather than a blessed 90%. I think that's just a terrifying thought because sometimes we're in that place and I know people who aren't tithing and they're thinking, you know, the devil's really against me. Might not be the devil. God might be against you because you're robbing him. In fact, write this down. A blessed 90% is far better than a cursed 100%. That is so true. A blessed 90% is far better than a cursed 100%. And that's the solution that the Lord proposes in the next verse from Malachi 3. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house house. So very quickly, God makes it clear, just so there can be no confusion, that the storehouse is his house. He says, it's my house. You see, at this time, that would have been the temple or the local synagogue, the house of God. So here's the point of that. Your tithe doesn't go to your favorite preacher on TV or the radio. Your tithe doesn't go to a Christian charity. It goes to your church, the house of God. If you want to give to those other things above and beyond your tithe, that's great. But God has already said where he wants his tithe to go. He says it goes to your local church, the house of God. And do you notice it doesn't say give all the tithes? It says bring all the tithes. Why? Because it's not even ours. It's his. He says it's mine and I'm giving you an instruction what to do with it. Bring it. And yet we struggle with this so much that God has to say all the tithes, or some of your Bibles will say the whole tithe. Why? Because we look for any loophole we can find. We might say, oh, a tithe when I go to church on Christmas and Easter, or I tithe on my income from the last 24 hours. We're so eager to find a loophole that God has to say, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. You see, it's called tithing, not tipping. That's why it's called tithing. God's command is to tithe. So imagine this situation. I just love this illustration. I know I use it all the time. Uh, I make a living robbing convenience stores. And last year I robbed 16. And uh, I get caught this year. And um, I'm brought before the judge. And I say, judge, you know, before we go any further, I just want to explain something to you. I understand that, that it's not right to rob convenience stores. 
I understand that, okay, on a heart level. Which is why this year, I've only robbed six. You see, I'm, I'm trending in the right direction, Judge. And I think that I should actually get a pat on the back for the positive movement I'm making in my life. That's not gonna happen and we all know that. Let me apply this to tithing. When we tip but don't tithe, we're just robbing God less, right? We're just robbing God less. And I choose to be honest about that because there's a lot of churches who uh, I would speculate in an effort to increase giving will say, if 10's too much for you, just give three. Let me tell you the problem with that. I don't have the authority to change God's command. I don't have the authority to stand in front of you and say, I know God says a tithe, but Pastor Jeff is cutting it down to 8.5 if you'll start tithing today. I don't have that authority, it's the word of God. I can't adjust it more than anything else. All I can tell you is the truth. There's tithing and there's robbing God because that's what God says. That's the only way I can present it to you. Now God goes on and he says, and try me now in this. Some of your Bibles will say, test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. This is the only place in scripture, many of you know this, where God invites us to test him in something. Here he says, check it out. See for yourself. Put me first with the tithe and see what happens in your life. Now when we do that, three things happen and they all start with R. So yes, I stole this from someone else. Firstly, you experience reward. You experience reward, write that down. In the next verse in Malachi 3, the Lord says, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. Some of you know what it's like to be financially cursed, to to feel like your paycheck just vaporizes immediately. As someone who was raised to tithe and continues to tithe, I want to testify that I've experienced just the opposite. I've experienced my paychecks going so much further than they should. I've had those moments when Charlene says, how is there money in the checking account right now? And what I'll usually say is, don't run the numbers, close the laptop, say thank you Jesus, and let's go on with our life. And that's what we do. (laughs) When your paycheck is cursed, it seems to shrink. When your paycheck is blessed, you know, it seems to stretch. And I don't know how else to explain it because it really is something supernatural that's going on. The second thing that happens is rebuke. And let me explain this, rebuke. In the verse we just read, it tells us about this. We know that we really do have an adversary, the devil, who's out to destroy our lives and our faith. And I firmly believe that sometimes the way he wants to do that is making you come home from church and there's a broken refrigerator waiting for you. That you go to the parking lot and your car's not gonna start. You know, we will never know when we tithe and we trust God, how many times Satan has desired to be the devourer in our life, to just wreck our faith by just trashing things, even on a practical level. We'll never know how many times God has stepped in and said, nope, not today, not today. That car is gonna go another 5,000 miles. For real, it's gonna do it. If we'll trust him with the tithe, the Lord promises to rebuke the devourer. And that doesn't mean nothing bad ever happens. Doesn't mean you can buy the cheapest refrigerator and it'll last you 50 years. 
It just means we have no idea how much could have happened that the Lord has protected us from. And then thirdly, revival. Revival. There's going to be personally in our lives a fruitfulness. Not only financially, but those greater true riches that Jesus talks about. And people are going to notice God at work in our lives as we take greater and greater steps of faith because when you break through this barrier of trusting God with money, suddenly it's so much easier to trust him with all these other things instead of just saying, I can't tithe and getting stopped there. People are gonna notice a fruitfulness, a revival in your life. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. Again, because these are both entities. Just like God is a real entity, a real force, a real being, mammon is a real force. It's a real entity. There's a demonic power behind it. And if you're serving him, you can't be serving God. You can't have it both ways. One of them will end up controlling you. That's why the Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. What does it say? It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money can be redeemed. It can be made good when it's submitted to the Lord and used for his purposes. Don't be a servant to money. Make money a servant of God. This is why so many social justice movements are doomed to fail. It's because the the people on Wall Street who are protesting the 1% love money just as much as the 1% that has it. You see, their solution to 1% having the money is I should have more of your money. They love money just as much. They're just bitter about the fact that they're not the ones who have it. That's why every political system that claims to be based on equality, be it socialism or communism, is doomed to fail because ultimately the love of money ruins those things. That's why in communist countries, the leaders are fabulously wealthy because they couldn't say no to the pull of money. They couldn't do it. The problem we have with humanity is not equity of distribution. The problem we have is the love of money. We're controlled by money. We love money more than God. And until he comes to rule and reign, it's probably gonna stay that way, honestly. You cannot serve God and mammon. Write this down. Very simply, here's what it means. We don't look to money for that which we're to find in the Lord. We don't look to money for that which we're to find in the Lord. Here's what I mean. We don't look to money for security. We don't look to money to give us peace. We don't look to money to buy us things that will make us feel more self-esteem or anything like that. We're supposed to look to God for all those things. And if we're looking to money as the solution for those needs in our life, we're serving money. We're serving mammon. Abraham, the friend of God, had just rescued his 'er ne'er-do-good nephew Lot from these armies, these five kings who came into the city of Sodom, took a whole bunch of Sodomites, including Lot and his family, captive, along with all their possessions. So Abraham, who's a bad man in a good way, takes a whole bunch of mercenaries, a couple of hundred that he apparently has on his payroll for a rainy day, and they go and they defeat them, and they free all these people from Sodom, and they're on their way back from this, and Abraham encounters Melchizedek, who some of you will know, we've talked about him before, is most likely a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus incarnate. And it says he's the king of Salem, which means king of peace. And he serves Abraham bread and wine, communion, prophetically, before Jesus went to the cross. And it says just out of an awe for who he was, Abraham gave him a tithe of all that he had. He's blown away by Melchizedek, by meeting Jesus. Right after that, very interesting thing, if you read the story in Genesis, 
Guess who Abraham bumps into? The king of Sodom. If there is such a thing, it's a Satanophany, an appearance of Satan in the Old Testament. And the king of Sodom says, oh, thanks for uh, freeing a whole bunch of my people and all their stuff. You know what, Abraham? You can keep all their stuff. Abraham says to him, I won't even take a shoelace from you. And he leaves. Amazing thing. So what in the world gave Abraham the power and the resolve to say no to the pull of earthly wealth? The fact that he tithed just before that. The fact that he tithed. You see, every time you tithe, you are defeating the power and the pull of unrighteous mammon on your life. You're defeating it. You're saying, listen, in my life, money bows to God. We do not bow to money. In our family, our money bows to God. We don't bow to money. And when that lure and that temptation comes to compromise your values, compromise the word of God for a few extra dollars, you're able to say, I don't want anything to do with that because you're in the regular habit of forcing money and wealth to bow down before God. That's how it works. That's how we overcome the lure and the power of unrighteous mammon. You see, my heavenly father is a giver and he wants me to be like him. And so when I open up my hands to God and give back to him that which is his, I'm also giving away part of my flesh. That's why our father says, hey, give to me, not because I need it, but because you need to be set free. Verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, some of your Bibles may say covetous, also heard these things and they derided him. It literally means they turned up their nose at him. So, you know, if you're hearing this, and your response is that you're bugged or annoyed by what the Bible says, you're in the story. Isn't that great? You're being a Pharisee right now. Not you, but I mean the people who listen online to this later, you know. And the Bible tells us why the Pharisees and you are are feeling bugged and annoyed. It says this is why you're feeling annoyed. It's because like them, you're a lover of money. You're covetous. And here's a heavy definition of coveting, a heavy definition, write this down. This just cut me deep. You know, coveting is wanting more of something you already have enough of. Coveting is wanting more of something you already have enough of. Man, as you begin to play that out into every area of your life, my life, those areas that you're dissatisfied with, how many of those would you say, you know, the truth is I have enough, I'm just dissatisfied, I'm coveting. These Pharisees were greedy. They were lovers of money. They had no interest in this message of Jesus. Verse 15, and he said to them, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Here's what he's talking about. The Pharisees are the original prosperity gospel guys. They believed the more spiritual you were, the more wealth you would have. So they did everything they could to acquire money and wealth and display their money and wealth so that everyone would realize how spiritual they were. Our world today still sort of works this way because ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, those who are wealthy are admired in our culture, aren't they? Our culture admires and reveres the wealthy, as though they're somehow better and and more significant. And this is why over and over again, we hear Jesus basically talk about how that system, that world system makes him sick and things are gonna be completely reversed in his kingdom. You see, those who love the Lord in this life, who were faithful to the Lord in this life, yet may have been poor in many ways in this life, 
are going to be wealthy and prominent in eternity. For 70 or 80 years, people look at outward appearances, but in the ages to come, those things will be irrelevant. This is why Paul urges us to run for a spiritual prize and not a material one. In 1 Samuel, it says, the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So because the Pharisees believed that wealth meant spirituality, Jesus says, let me give you an example of someone who was a really big deal but didn't have a lot of money. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. This is John the Baptist. So Jesus says, John is a guy who didn't have a lot of money. And we deduce this by reading between the lines the facts that he lived in a cave, ate insects, and wore animal skins. We sort of can discern that he probably didn't have a lot of money. And yet everybody recognized God used him in a significant and powerful way. In his day, people said this is the most powerful man since Elijah on the face of the earth. Interesting side note here, if you don't know this, Jesus says the law and the prophets were until John. So Jesus is actually saying the Old Testament era closed when John was executed. John was the last Old Testament prophet. That's how Jesus describes this. Then he goes on and he says, since that time the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. In the original language, the idea is just that the gospel is being preached and those who get it, those who receive it, are pressing into it. They're being aggressive about putting everything they have into the gospel, into the kingdom of God. The idea is those who really understand the gospel live radically for heaven rather than for earth. Jesus keeps talking to these Pharisees who refuse to receive what he's saying and he says, and it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle, the smallest stroke in a Hebrew letter of the law to fail. He says, listen, nothing in the law is ever going to fail and he's luring the Pharisees in here because the Pharisees all would have gone, of course, we agree with that, we agree with that. So Jesus keeps talking and he says, law is perfect, it never fails. And then he says, let's make an analogy here. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's unpack this, because some of you just got really, really tense. In Deuteronomy 24, let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse one, the Lord says this. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. You see, the idea behind this command was intended to allow divorce if, for example, the husband finds out that his wife is sleeping with someone else. That is the kind of thing that's meant by some uncleanness. But the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees quickly decided that they would interpret that text to basically allow them to get out of any marriage where they just got tired of their wife. This is a bad thing. Or maybe they just found an upgrade and they said, you know, my wife's had a couple of kids. She doesn't have her figure anymore. But, you know, I'm a rabbi, so people esteem me. And this 18-year-old over here is very interested, so I gotta find some uncleanness in my wife. That's clearly what the solution is here. So the end result was that they decided that some uncleanness could refer to incredibly petty things. Rabbi Halal, at the time of Jesus, said, some uncleanness can include your wife overspicing your food for dinner. You can say, that's it. Here's your divorce certificate. Be gone. I wanted it to work out, but clearly you didn't. Otherwise, you wouldn't have overspiced the food. So these corrupt religious leaders took God's word 
perverted it. They, they twisted it to create a loophole so that they could get out of following God's design of one man and one woman being married. Now Jesus points out to them, here's the real standard, guys, since you seem to have forgotten. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. The point Jesus is making is that there's a standard in the Bible they don't want to live up to. So they've searched the Bible until they find something they can twist and distort to get out of what they know God really wants them to do. Now don't forget, this chapter in conversation is not about marriage, it's about money, and he's using this as an illustration. The most literal way to read verse 18 is actually this. Whoever divorces his wife for the purpose of marrying another commits adultery and vice versa. We know this because Deuteronomy 24.2 makes an allowance for remarriage after divorce because there are such situations as abuse. And you can check that out in your own time. But here's what Jesus is saying. I know how you guys are living because almost all of them had done this in marriages. How you guys are, are twisting the scriptures. You just don't want to do what the Bible says in marriage. And so you found a loophole. But here's the deal. It's just plain old adultery. You're divorcing your wife because you already know who you want to marry next. This is flat out adultery, that's what it is. Just like what you're doing with money. You don't wanna do what the Bible says with money. So you twist it and distort it to make a loophole. One of the favorites I hear in our day is people who go, well you know, the Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Aha, I have found that I am not cheerful when I give to God. Therefore, I should not give to the Lord. Same thing, Jesus is saying, really? Like, like, really? You think that's the solution I wanted you to come with rather than my point being you should be cheerful? You take it as you should not give. Wow, wow. So that's the point that Jesus is making here. He's saying you're distorting the scriptures when it comes to the issue of marriage, just like you distort the issue of money. Now we go on and we'll read through verse 19 and we're going to fly through this because we studied it in depth last week. Now Jesus says, just to rub it in for you guys, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously. He lived in luxury every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs, just the leftovers, which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, although one rise from the dead. 
And again, we studied the mystical side of this last week, so if you're wondering what we're talking about with Hades and the bosom of Abraham and the place of torments, listen to last week's message. We unpack it in depth. On a practical side, just a few observations here. Lazarus the beggar was placed right in front of the rich man, literally. He was a crippled man who was placed right at his gate. The rich man would have seen him every time he came and went out of his house. So clearly what the Lord has done is he said, I'm gonna put my boy, my son, right in front of the guy I've given the resources to, to help him. Because how else could I set this up? But the rich man never does. He never gets around to it. Perhaps the rich man had said, I'm gonna leave all my money to the synagogue when I die. But that's not really gonna meet the need that the Lord has put in front of him right now. Perhaps the rich man has said, you know, uh, I'm tapped out too. Do you have any idea how much it costs to fare sumptuously every day? Luxury is expensive. I, I, I got bills to pay. I got a big mortgage. I'm leveraged to the hilt. Man, can that be us too, right? We have enough. We realize we can have more. And instead of having more to give, we just keep filling up however much the Lord gives us and spending it on ourselves. Whatever the reason was, he was too busy spending it all on himself to even see the believer in need. Perhaps he told himself, you know, praise God that he put this man here because unlike less righteous people, I'm not gonna kick this guy out. I'm gonna let him stay there. All my leftovers are his. I don't think God was impressed. I don't think he was impressed. I also noticed that the wealthy man wasn't saved, but the beggar was. And we should be very careful to not assume that our station in life automatically gains us a specific station in heaven. Just because we're rich here doesn't mean we'll be rich in heaven. Listen up though. Just because you're poor here doesn't mean you'll be rich in heaven. Jesus doesn't hate rich people. That's not how this works. It's not a socialist. It's submitting our time, our talent, and our treasure to Jesus in this life that will dictate our station in the next life. How much of our time, how much of our talent, how much of our treasure, how faithful were we with what God gave us? What did we do with it? It's not gonna impact our salvation, but it will impact our eternity. So the first step in managing what God has given you well is simply to recognize that it's not ours. That's the first step, is recognizing it's not ours. They don't belong to us, they belong to the Lord and he's made us stewards, managers over those things for a limited time. And if you read the Bible, you'll find out part of the reason is to find out what can he trust us with for the thousand years of the millennium. He's looking for quality managers. This is just an audition right now. He's looking for good managers for the millennium and for the ages to come. So the question is not, how should I treat my wife? The question is, how should I treat God's daughter? The question is not, how should I raise my kids? The question is, how should I raise God's kids? How does he want his children raised? The question is not, how should I handle my money? The question is, how should I handle God's money? And on and on and on we could go to every area of life. Some of you will say, well, I know people who who don't tithe, aren't believers, and they're doing great. Yeah, because they're not God's kids. They're not his kids. He doesn't discipline those who aren't his kids, but you're his kids. 
So you can't get away with it. He's going to make sure you don't get away with it. This is so crucial because I really want you to understand this. If you're not tithing and you're frustrated in your financial life, it wouldn't matter if somebody wrote you a check for $100,000. It wouldn't solve your problems. If God is against you and that's the reason you're in financial distress, the issue is not money. The issue is getting right with God. And just as much as things seem to shrink and evaporate, God can make them stretch and go further than you could possibly imagine. And I want you to know this, this is true wherever you go to church. If you're like, I think what he's saying is true, but I don't like him, I'm gonna go to another church, then tithe there. Because this isn't about me, this isn't about the church getting money, this is about you being in agreement with God so that you're not blocking the good work God wants to do in your financial life. Amen, thank you. Finally got one right there at the end. I'm so glad. I'm keeping that on the tape. Okay. It all belongs to the Lord. We all get to be stewards for a very limited time. It's not about what we want. It's about what he wants. Final verse. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.2. He says, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Hear me on this. Not successful. Faithful. The only thing God is looking for in his stewards is faithfulness. Faithfulness. He's looking for one thing. Here's why that's so important. Faithfulness has nothing to do with how much he's asked you to steward. If you feel like, man, I feel like I got next to nothing to steward. Steward that next to nothing faithfully. That's what it's about. It's about faithfulness. There are going to be people in charge of countries in the millennium who've never managed resources that were worth more than $5. You know why? Because they managed the heck out of those $5 and they were faithful with it and they were true to the Lord with it and God says, that's what I'm looking for. The issue isn't money, the issue is priorities. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you've entrusted us, Lord. Every single one of us, whether it seems like a lot or a little right now, you've entrusted us Some of us with spouses, with children, but each of us with a certain amount of resources. And Lord, the issue isn't how much we have. The issue is priorities. And we are just declaring this morning that we want there to be no confusion in heaven that you are our highest priority, Lord God. Help us to manage what you've given us well. Help us to place faithfulness above success. That, Lord, we're not trying to gain anybody else's approval except yours. Help us not to care what anybody else thinks, but only what you think. And help us to be found faithful, Lord, that in the ages to come, we would be entrusted with much. We want to be an ambitious group of people when it comes to eternity. Lord, we want riches in heaven. We want to be trusted with much. We want to be found faithful. We want to enjoy your presence to the fullness of its potential. Father, help us to be wiser than those who are only preparing for a temporary future. May the sons and daughters of light be wise, be smart, and invest in eternity. And Jesus, just thank you for telling us this. Thank you for not letting this be a surprise lesson in heaven, but for telling us now so that we can choose wisely and submit everything that we have to you. 
Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.